Good morning, Grace Fam. Good to be here with you all. And I see the excitement. You all must be excited for Father's Day. Are you? Yeah. And we want to thank you. Thank you. I want to say happy Father's Day to you all. And we know whenever we celebrate these days, you know, there's a mixture of emotion always. And so we want to honor uh, those fathers who are in the house today. We want to honor those men. Even though you may not have any children of your own, you are a father figure to someone. We want to honor you. Uh, but we also want to honor you who, you know, you've lost your dad and you're thinking about him and a uh, hard day for you. And we want to say that we're praying for you and uh, you are in our thoughts and our hearts as well. And, uh, and so we're going to pray, but uh, we also want to honor our heavenly father, right? And um, as I was thinking this morning in, in prayer with the uh, prayer team before service this morning, I just kept getting this this sense of delight, you know, that as we were delighting in our Heavenly Father doing worship, that He was delighting in us and that He delights in His children. And what really is true is that you can never outgive your Heavenly Father. I mean, He's already ahead of us, you know, so we, we owe Him love, but He just still keeps giving and giving. And there's a passage uh, in Scripture where Jesus is talking, and he says to some fathers, he, say, he said, you being evil fathers, if you know how to give good gifts, that doesn't even compare to your heavenly father who is a good father, that he gives good gifts. And um, I just really had the sense that He wants to give good gifts to his children. He wants us to know that he wants to bless us. Uh, That's the way that he delights in us by blessing us. And we may be feeling like, I'm not worthy. Um, You know, I don't deserve it. But a good father doesn't look at those things. And as John was singing, and he began to sing a song, and I don't think you plan to sing that, the turnaround, because I didn't hear you rehearsing that or practicing that. You know, in, a, in other words, he was giving us a cry to turn around. He was telling us to repent. It was a call to repent. And to repent means to just turn around or simply change the way that you think. And as he was singing that, I, I saw the picture of the father standing with his arms open waiting for us to turn around. And immediately the story of the prodigal son came to mind. And it's really not about the prodigal son. It's about the prodigal father. The word prodigal means wasteful. And the son had wasted his inheritance living any kind of way that he wanted to. And one day when his money ran out, you know, it was ironic because when his money ran out, so did his friends. And um, he found himself in the pig pen. And he was thinking to himself, he says, wait a minute, I know my father is a good man, and even his servants have it better than I have right now. He made a decision. He says, you know what, I'm going to go home and I'm going to say to him, hey, don't even, don't take me back as a son, just take me back as a servant. And so he makes up in his mind to turn around. 
And as he's on his way to go home, the scripture says that the father was there waiting for him. How did the father know he was going to return that day? I'm not sure he knew. Maybe he was just waiting every day, hoping that today would be the day that his son would come home. And as his son came home and then his son was about to say what he was going to say, like, don't, don't take me back as a son, just take me back as a servant. Before he can get it out of his mouth, his father started to celebrate his returning home and started saying, essentially what he said is, hey, bring this boy out some gifts. We're going to have a party and we're going to celebrate that he's back home. And so I wonder if we can begin this service. Usually we call for repentance at the end of the service. But I'm wondering if we can begin with repentance before the sermon. And if we could take a moment while we pray for fathers, if we can, first of all, repent, change our thinking about our heavenly father. If we can repent and say, you know what, God, forgive us for the ways that we haven't believed that you really are a good God, that you really are present with me, that you really are looking out. Forgive me for not believing that. And so we'll start with that, with a little turnaround, and then we'll pray for all of our fathers. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. And you know, I'm going to do this uh, just to kneel here, um, and you assume whatever posture you want to assume, uh, and just asking God for his forgiveness here and repenting and changing our thinking here. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we just humble ourselves before you this morning, acknowledging that your word is true, that you really are a good father and you delight in your children. And Father, we ask forgiveness for not really believing that. Father, many of us have been um, blocked from believing it because our earthly fathers have been in the way. And Father, for those um, who are here this morning that Father's Day brings up a lot of pain, we ask that you, being the good father that you are, would bring healing to their heart this morning. That they would be able to release the anger, the hurt, and the pain, knowing the truth that when our earthly mothers and fathers forsake us, that's when you step in. And you father us and mother us well. Father, we ask forgiveness for not taking you at your word. Father, we ask forgiveness for not submitting our cares and concerns to you, believing that you didn't want to be bothered with them. But here, Father, we just ask forgiveness and we turn our eyes to you. We turn our hearts and our minds toward you. We turn around and we embrace you. We receive your embrace. And Father, now we lift up all of those who are fathers or father figures uh, this morning. We pray uh, that you would open our eyes to learn from you what it means to be a father. We pray that we would receive grace and strength to continue being good fathers. And God, for those of us who may not have been the best father that we could, I pray that you would... Uh, Put a fight in our hearts to fight for our families, to fight for our children. For, for, the, for those of us who've given up on being fathers for whatever reason, I pray that you would even work in that confusion 
and you would bring peace to those situations so that we can be fathers after your own image and likeness. And we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Right. Uh, we started last week a, ser- a new series called Everyday Saints, and uh, we're looking at the letter written by first, written by Peter. I almost say by First Peter, but uh, written by Peter, and it's entitled First Peter because there are two letters that are attributed to his name. And so we have First Peter and Second Peter, and we're looking at First Peter. Now, this title, Everyday Saints. Uh, depending on what tradition that you come from, maybe you view saints as these super holy people, you know, who've done, who've, saints who've done these extraordinary things, these magnificent miracles, and you're like, oh, that's a saint. And we honor those believers who've done great things uh, throughout the history of the faith. But really, the truth is, according to God's word, that any believer in Jesus Christ is considered a saint that we are all saints. And also another truth is that we do not have to do these extraordinary feats that we think in our mind to qualify as saints. Sometimes we're reaching so high on the tree for the high fruit that we miss the low-hanging fruit. That it is in the ordinary things in life where God shows up to do extraordinary things. Those tasks like going to work every day, going to the supermarket, those moments that we spend with our families, those are moments in which God would love to show his extraordinary power. And so it is in those moments that we all can be everyday saints, making a difference for the kingdom. So let's look at 1 Peter. I believe 1 Peter is in the New Testament, and I believe it's right after the book of James. First Peter, taking me a minute to get there, but I am there. And we're going to read a few verses and then I'll give a little context here. Looking at verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's just crazy right there. Grace and peace, and may it be multiplied to you. That's just crazy, sorry. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Amen. There's a lot there. And unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to unpack that in the short amount of time that we have together. But thankfully, this is something that you can read the rest of the week, you know, and take apart on your own. Uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit, and I encourage you to do that. I'm only going to be able to hit on a few things, and um, hopefully you will delve back in it uh, as we continue through this series. Here, um, we talked about last week that, you know, we put up a map and we talked about how Paul was writing this letter uh, to the people throughout the Roman Empire. And we see here the places that are mentioned in the beginning of his letter, Bithynia and Pontus, We've got Galatia here, Cappadocia, and Asia is there. And throughout this whole region, there are communities of believers scattered throughout. And this letter has to hit each one of these communities. And it's not like us where Peter, you know, he's sending it out by email or he's sending a text or, you know, he's telling them, hey, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. No, they're getting the letter one community at a time. And think about this, when they get the letter, you know, it's not like they photocopy it and everybody gets a, a copy for their own home. No, the way they're going to hear this letter is that the leaders of their community are going to gather them together and they're going to listen to this word as a community. And as they're listening, it, listening to it, they're open to what the Spirit is saying to them through the apostle. And so if you notice, he writes to them and he says to the elect exiles, elect exiles. And I mentioned last week that really this, these are two unique words paired together because to say elect means to, to the chosen, to the beloved. To say exiles is to say those who are rejected, those who are treated as foreigners, and what is, he, what is he saying here? Why is he putting this in this letter to this church? Because I think the reason he's doing it is because he wants them to help. He wants them to think about their identity in the times in which they're living. Because the times in which they're living, they're facing a lot of persecution and marginalization. I mentioned last week that there are three emperors 
uh, within the Roman Empire, whom commentators kind of say this was happening during their reign. Uh, Nero, Domitian, and Trajan, and most likely Nero. And Nero wasn't a nice guy. Uh, this guy we mentioned, he was hanging Christians as human torches to light the courtyards of his palace uh, during the nighttime, really destroying them. It was a tough time for believers. Uh, not a good time necessarily to be a Christian. And these believers were facing a tough temptation like, oh man, like this is not good. People are making fun of us. People are calling us strange. Things are happening. They're blaming it on us. How are we going to live in these times? And so the bulk of my talk this morning is going to focus about this identity as being elect exiles. How do we live as exiles? And in order to do this, you know, Peter, he kinds of roots, he roots them in the scripture, but he's also using this Old Testament language because in the Old Testament, we see the people of God referred to as exiles. They are exiles because they have been exiled out of their homeland and they're living in foreign territories such as Babylon. And they've got to figure out what does it mean to be the people of God while we're in exile. And you know, Peter, he really roots them in the gospel story. He says, first of all, you've got to remember that according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, remember, first of all, that you are born again. In other words, we have been transferred out of this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God. That means now that we're not just citizens for them of the Roman Empire. That's not our real citizenship. We're, our main citizenship is not that we're just citizens of the United States. But because we are born again, our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. That we are kingdom citizens and we must not forget that that is our primary loyalty, is to the kingdom of God. And so he's saying, look, you've been born again. You're a part of the kingdom. You're children of God. You're kingdom citizens. And your inheritance, it is undefiled. It's incorruptible, and it's kept for you in heaven. Now, what does he mean by this? He means, look, the salvation that you have, you're experiencing it now, but we are a part of the people who are experiencing the kingdom of God now, and we will experience it in his fullness at the return of Jesus. And there is a new heaven and a new earth on the way. And that inheritance cannot be corrupted by the enemy. It cannot suffer damage. And just to give you a brief example, you know, when it talks about that coming city, the new heaven and the new earth, it talks about the streets are paved with what? Oh, you all know that, huh? Well, just think about this for a minute. Streets are paved with gold. Let's think about that here. How many... now? Detroit has a lot of potholes, right? <laughs> a lot of potholes. How many of you see people 
going to those areas where there's loose pavement or loose gravel trying to get some pocket and cash in on it. You know anybody trying to do that? I don't either. But I do know people who shoot, kill, steal for gold. Now, in this coming city, in this coming new world, the stuff that people are fighting over down here, that's just pavement in the coming world. So that, that stuff that we place a high value, oh my gosh, in the new world, man, we're going to be walking on that stuff. We'll be walking on it. And so this inheritance that we have is so precious that thankfully by the Holy Spirit, we're experiencing it now and we're experiencing unbelievable, we're experiencing unbelievable goodness right now. But the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. So living as exiles. And so I believe that there's three temptations or three challenges uh, that Peter is encouraging these believers to, to deal with. When you're living in exi as exiles, you could be tempted, number one, to assimilate. And to assimilate means to blend in, to give up your identity, ultimately causing a loss of witness. Now, to assimilate, these believers in the time of this letter could say, oh, you know what, we're Christians, but it's just safer for us just to fit in and blend into the culture. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. <laughs> Keep a low profile. We won't be in trouble. Nobody will make fun of us. We'll just blend in. I don't need to tell anybody I'm a Christian. I don't need to speak up about certain things. I don't need to offer prayer about certain things. No, I don't need to give my viewpoint because, you know, they tell me when I come into the classroom to check my faith at the door or when they tell me when I come to work, they don't want any religious people there. So I, it's just better if I don't cause any trouble and I just assimilate. That's part of the temptation. It's just to assimilate, to blend in. But when you do that, you lose your power to make a difference. And remember, as believers, the scripture says, Jesus said it, that the Holy Spirit would come upon us and we would be his witnesses, meaning that we would point to the life that he and his kingdom brings. And so if we've assimilated, we've lost our witness. We've lost our ability to make real lasting impact. Another response is by exiles is number two is we could just live in despair, meaning that we've lost sight of God and his kingdom, meaning that we've got our eyes on how big darkness is. You know, it's like if you were to go inside your house and you've got all the lights out and you just continually say, man, it's dark in here. Show is dark in here. It's too dark in here. Oh, this darkness, this darkness is overwhelming. I can't see anything. Light switches right there. But your, your eyes are just set on the darkness, on how big the darkness is. And let's not underestimate the power of evil. Evil is powerful. And it's doing real damage in our time. The kingdom of darkness is real. 
But when we put our eyes only on the kingdom of darkness and not on the kingdom of God, we, fall, we find ourselves falling into despair and hopelessness. We retreat. That means when we just let the darkness have its way. You know, we leave. We vacate the world to the darkness. Meaning that we lose our saltiness. And what do I mean by that? Once again, it's a loss of witness. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, right? But if we're the salt of the earth, what happens when we lose our flavor? We're only good to be walked on. And so we don't want to settle for being in despair. We want to keep our eyes on God and his kingdom. The third response that we could have, and I think what Peter wants the people of God to step into is we can reimagine where we are. And what do I mean reimagine? When we reimagine, we're looking at the context that we're in and our eyes are on God, his kingdom, and his mission. In other words, we're saying, the show is dark in here, but God is up to something. And we begin to pray, God, what are you doing in the midst of all this darkness? God, what are you up to? And we begin to lean in and we begin to say, Holy Spirit, ignite our imagination so we can see things the way that you see it. You know, there's a story uh, in the Old Testament uh, found in the book of Esther about a young lady, Esther, who was living in exile. And um, there were some things that went down with the king and his wife. You know, she, didn't really, she wasn't really feeling the king at the time. And the king is like, you're no longer my wife. I need a new one. And so they do this whole search trying to find a new queen. That's my paraphrase. I'm really not doing justice. You should read that book too. But so they, they do this search for a new queen. And there happens to be this Hebrew girl that the scripture says she is beautiful. And the king chooses her to be his wife. Now, there's some other things going down in this kingdom because it's not a godly kingdom. There's this whole plot to destroy the Hebrew people, her people. And her cousin shows up one day and says, hey, I know you chilling in the palace. I know you loving it. Get your Manicure, your pedicure done, you know, servants waiting on you, but this is a critical time. And who knows if you've been brought to this kingdom for such a time as this. And you know what? It wakes her up to realize wait a minute, there's purpose for me being where I am in this particular time and context. And she begins to intercede and pray, and she puts her life on the line and actually brings salvation and deliverance to her people. So we cannot underestimate why we are here. You know, we just didn't get here because two people laid down and we, we popped up nine months later. We are here because life comes from God. And God has ordained for us to be in this particular time, at this particular place, for his particular purpose. And no matter how dark the night is, 
There is light in each and every one of us if we allow God to be God through us. And so Peter is calling these believers to reimagine their identity. Realize you're the people of God. Have hope in the good news and in this kingdom. You've got to embrace your identity and your mission where you are in your current context. I believe that the church must always wrestle with what it means to be the people of God in our particular context. Now, for us in America, it's very different from the church in Turkey or the church in North Korea or any other place. And we have to wrestle with what does it mean to be the people of God right where we are in our context. This is important. It's not something that we can just say, hey, I'm, I'm a part of the people of God. No, we've got to realize that we've got to realize that it's something that we've got to give serious thought to. How am I being a part of the kingdom when I go to work? How am I being a part of the kingdom when I'm in my neighborhood? Am I looking for opportunities, realizing that I'm representing another kingdom? I'm of a colony of heaven. And the colony of heaven is in stark contrast to the kingdoms of this world. And we represent a future reality, the kingdom of God that is coming. People should look at the way that we live, the way uh, that we serve one another, the way that we love one another, and say, oh, there's a huge difference there. And they would opt in for the communities of God, by the people of God. Now, in order to illustrate this a little bit better, I'm going to uh, take a look at the life of Daniel. How many of you remember the life of Daniel? That's another book y'all should check out. <laughs> Daniel. But Daniel is a young man, a teenager, who's in exile. And there are some amazing things that happen in his life. And I'm going to try to take us through that really quickly here. And uh, we'll look at Daniel, the first chapter. You don't have to turn there. You can listen. And uh, you can check it out later. Man, Scripture is so good. I just wish I could tell you all to read everything. Well, I can, but you know so much. But looking at Daniel, I want you to pay attention to his unique situation. Very quickly, in verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He took it over. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. 
They were, be, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were these boys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, let me break this down to you. So the king of Babylon takes over the kingdom of Judah. And he decides he's going to reprogram these boys. He's going to just call, he wants them to assimilate to Babylonian culture. And so they're going to enter into his training institute for three years. And hopefully at the end of these three years, he's hoping to have these boys programmed. So they can enter into his service. Now, you look at this and these boys have got to be wrestling because they know they've been trained and they've been discipled about their God. And they've got to be wrestling with, oh, how are we going to live in this strange land? They've got to be asking themselves, why would God allow this to happen? Why did this king conquer our king? What are they trying to do to us? And the king, you know, he's going to feed them nice. They're going to eat what the king eats. But listen to the response of these boys. In verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Here's what's happening. Daniel's wrestling with, man, how am I going to serve God and be faithful to him in this unfaithful kingdom, in this unfaithful culture? That's what many of us wrestle with on a daily basis. How are we going to be the people of God in this godless world? And so Daniel says, okay, I'm not going to let them give me the okie doke like the Pied Piper. You know, the Pied Piper's playing his pipe, and everybody's like dancing and falling all over off the cliff, dying because they're not paying attention. And, you know, the, if, you know, the way they get some men, they say, is to the stomach. <laughs> and so King is trying to feed them good, give them that good wine, you know, they sipping on a, sipping on a little something and just got them celebrating, not paying attention. But Daniel's like, no, you're not going to bamboozle me. He says, I'll tell you what, he, he calls the eunuch over and he doesn't say to the eunuch, we are from Judah. We are Hebrews and we serve the living God. We won't eat that junk. He doesn't approach it like that, but he says, hey, let me holler at you for a second. He says, listen, listen, I know the king wants us to eat because he wants us to be healthy or whatever, but look, we'd really like to eat something a little different. Can you give us some vegetables and some water? I, 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 I see your face. I know you're thinking it's a little out there, but just test us. And after 10 days, if we don't look good, then we'll eat what everybody else is eating. And the eunuch, not knowing what's up, is like, okay, all right, that sounds good. We'll do that. Daniel had purposed in his heart, he's not going to allow himself to defile. First of all, he makes a commitment of, I know about my identity. I know the God I serve, and I know that I belong to him. 
and I'm going to keep my eyes open and I'm going to live a certain way. The eunuch, he says, okay. Ten days later, he returns and it says that he found these boys looking better than the rest of the fellas. As a matter of fact, he's so blown away by it, he says, hey, take them steaks away and that wine away. We're going to feed everybody else what these fellas are eating. <laughs> you mean these four Hebrew boys in this huge kingdom is now dictating the meal program of the culture? You see this powerful stand that they take? And they didn't do it in some obnoxious way. God gave Daniel wisdom in how to do it and how to be a witness. And listen to this. So they go through this program. Daniel, because he's being faithful, God allows him to be fruitful. Watch what happens. It says that um, during this time in verse 17, it says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Okay, this is a trip. It says that God gave them wisdom and understanding in all of the stuff that they were learning. And to Daniel, he gave the ability to understand dreams and visions. Now, why is God doing this? Because God is up to something in Babylon. And so he knows that these boys are in a programming situation, but they are undercover for the kingdom. And see, God is going to bless them, and he's going to give them spiritual gifts so that they can succeed in bringing glory and honor to his name. Now, Pastor Doug talked about a few weeks ago that we are a word and spirit church. That means that we're centered on the scriptures, but we also in, have an open invitation because we can't be the people of God without the spirit of God. And so when we're asking God to, you know, bestow spiritual gifts upon us, or Lord, teach us how to use our spiritual gifts, we're not saying that we want to be spooky or weird, but we're recognizing that the only way that we can bear witness to the king is that there has to be a display of his power. There has to be. So what happens in chapter 2, don't have a lot of time to read it, is that the king has this dream. And he calls everybody together and he says, look, I had a dream and I'm not telling y'all what it is. If y'all really real, y'all will tell me what I dreamed about and you'll interpret it. They all get a little nervous. And one of them says, hey, king, come on now. Just tell us what the dream is. If you tell us, at least we can interpret it. He said, don't play me. That's my interpretation. Don't play me like that. <laughs> Don't play me like that. 
because I know y'all going to try to run game. As a matter of fact, if y'all don't tell me what I dreamed about and interpret it, I'm killing all of y'all and y'all families. Oh, everybody's shook now. <laughs> everybody's shook. Daniel hears about this, tells the eunuch, his man who's been giving him favor. You know, God has that one person who he gives you favor with. He says, hey, go holler at the king and tell him just to give us a little bit of time. Daniel goes to his boys and he says, hey, we got to pray. And we got to ask God. We got to fast and pray and ask God to reveal this dream. Because I'll tell you what, the world is dreaming. The world is hearing from God. They just don't understand what he's saying. And they need people like us to be able to say, let me tell you what he's saying. So God not only reveals the dream to Daniel, but he gives Daniel the interpretation. Daniel interprets the dream for the king. The king is blown away. And look at the response to the king, the response of the king. Um, the king, in verse 46 of chapter 2, I'll just read it for you. It says, then the, then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. This wicked king who's just conquered Daniel and the people of Judah, which in their minds is a reason to brag and to say our God is better than your God. But he has this dream and his God can't reveal it. And Daniel realizing, you know, God would only allow us to go in exile for his purpose and for his reason only. And he reveals this dream and this king pays homage to Daniel's God. What would it be like if we realized that we were on mission in the context that God has each and every one of us in? And we realized that there was all sorts of kingdom opportunity where we could be a witness. Once again, I'm not talking about the silly witnesses. You know, you go into the grocery store and you walk up three steps, one for the father, one for the son, one for the... I'm not talking about that kind of witness. <laughs> You know, but, you know, and I'm being funny, but truth is God will use even that. I'm just being a little funny and facetious, but God even uses our ignorant ways in learning how to be a witness. He even uses those in powerful ways. But what if we really took some time to pray and really think about how can I be a blessing to these people in my community? When you're standing at the water cooler at the job and somebody says, oh, I can't believe what I'm facing this week. This is going crazy. Uh, somebody in my family is sick. This is happening. And everybody is listening and say, oh, I'm so sorry for you. Oh, that's terrible. It's rough. And everybody walks away. What if in that moment, the kingdom response is, hey, I'm really sorry that that's happening. Can I pray for you? Can we lift this up to the Lord? And in that moment, you begin to pray to the God who actually has ears and arms where he listens and responds. 
And in that moment, you're opening up a window to be a witness. Just like Daniel did. To say, you know what? I'm not, my God is too powerful for me just to fit in. Just to assimilate and not give him praise and not glorify him where I am on a daily basis. We must be people of the kingdom that recognize, you know what? As exiles, we've got to take advantage of every opportunity for the kingdom. Three questions I want to give you here as I bring this to a close. And this is a, these are good questions that you can get some people together. You know, a couple of believers, y'all go out for coffee, sit around the table and wrestle with these questions. If you have a small group, you can wrestle with these questions a little bit. But the first question I have for you is, what's the God temperature of your context? What's the God temperature of your context? And what I mean by that, what's people's disposition towards God or spiritual things? You know, sometimes you can be in an environment where people are downright cold and hostile. In a context like that, you need some real wisdom. What's the context? Is it cold, warm, where people are, okay, okay, I can talk about it, but not too much. Or is it a hot context where like people are ready, they're just waiting on somebody to talk to them and engage them? And the reason why that's a good question is because if you don't pay attention to the context, you won't take advantage of the opportunity. But when you begin to take a pulse on the context that you're in, then you know how to pray. And then you know how to position yourself to be a witness for the kingdom. Question number two, what is your level of awareness of God at work? Are you expectant? Are you looking? Are you like the dog that sees the squirrel? Squirrel, squirrel. Are you looking for the God opportunity? Oh, God, where you at? Wait, I'm, I'm watching. Is, is that you, God? Are you looking for the opportunity? Or are you in despair that you're so blinded by the darkness, you just don't think God, God comes near your place of work or your community? You think like, oh, God avoids this place. He ain't here. Is it a, a place of despair? Or are you just apathetic that you just really don't even care? And this is not to shame you, but this is really just to challenge us to think about these things. The third question is, what does it look like to be a witness in your context? What does it look like to be a witness? Stand to your feet. As people of the kingdom, we want to be so rooted in the gospel, so connected with our Lord, that we're realizing we have to walk in our identity, but we also have to live out our kingdom mission. Before the service, the, as the prayer team were praying, there were three things that they felt specifically to pray over. One of those were ankles. If somebody's dealing with an ankle injury or ankle pain, please respond and come up for prayer. Um, peace. If you're troubled, confusion, anxiety, and you just need God's peace, please come and let them pray for you. Also, forgiveness. Uh, you may be struggling with forgiving, forgiving someone, and God's really put that on your heart. Ah, come do business. Let them pray with you. And whatever need that you may have that we didn't mention, remember, he's a good father, and they're willing to pray with you and agree with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, um, that you have us all here for such a time as this. 
And God, we really do want to be people of the kingdom. We want to be citizens of the kingdom that are saying, let heaven come to earth. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the opportunities around them. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding so that we could be people of excellence in whatever we do, recognizing that our excellence may cause doors to open to be able to share about you. Father, also I pray that you would gift us with the gifts that we need to be fruitful in our particular context. Gifts of healing, gifts of prophecy, gifts of miracles, whatever the gift is best for our context. Father, may there be a growing desire in us to be able to seek you for these things, not for our glory, not for our fame, but for your glory and for your renown. We pray, thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Be blessed.